Daniel chapter number 8. We are in the book of Daniel chapter number 8. The title of the, our um, study tonight is Visions of Conquest. Visions of Conquest, the ram and the he-goat. The ram and the he-goat. Before we begin, let me just remind you that in chapter number 7, at the end of chapter 7, we ended the Aramaic section of the book of Daniel, that passage of Daniel which was written in the language of the Babylonians, Aramaic, and um, now we are entering into the language again of the Hebrews, the Hebrew language, beginning in verse number 1 of chapter 8, and it will stay in the language of the Hebrews all the way to the end of the book of Daniel. Now the reason for that is now these passages are really going to lay an emphasis not on the Gentile world, but on the Jewish world. And um, it'll be helpful for you to remember in prophecy, um, the Old Testament prophets could not see the church age. So when I refer to anything that may sound familiar to the church age, like maybe saints or different things like that, they take a different meaning from what we see in the New Testament. So keep that in mind as we read. So we'll go ahead and look in the book of Daniel. And we see Daniel's second vision beginning in verse number 1. And um, it says... In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which had appeared unto me at the first. So let's stop right here. It said that this vision occurred in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. And um, the first vision that we looked at in chapter number 7 occurred in the first year. So these are going pretty much chronologically. In fact, Daniel makes a mention that this is the one that came after the first vision. So this is his second vision. And it says in verse number 2, And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in a vision, and I was by the river of Ulai. Ulai. So we see the vision location being given to us in the book of Daniel. Now, to us today, we're not familiar with these names. Shushan or Ulai, or the province of Elam. But all of these provinces in this city and this river deal with the region of Persia, not in the Babylonian Empire. Even though he's having the vision in the Babylonian Empire, what he is seeing deals with the land of Persia. And the first place we'll talk about is Shushan, or it's also known as Susa in the Bible. This was the capital of Persia, in Daniel's day. And here's a picture of the ruins of the city of, of Shushan. This would stay as the capital of, um, of Persia until the building of the great city of Persopolis um, years later. So Daniel is seeing a vision that deals with the capital, the capital of the city of Persia. Also, the river Ulai is um, known today as the Karka River. The Karka River in Iran. It's still a river that flows today. You can go to it and see it today. He's standing by the banks of this river. Here's a picture of the river Ulai. And this is where Daniel was standing when he has his vision. And what he begins to see first is the ram. He sees the ram. It says in verse number 3, Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. 
And I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. Now verses 3 and 4 tell us a few things about, um, about this ram. Number one, he stood before the river. Also, he had two horns. Now pay attention that one horn was higher than the other horn. I'll explain what that means later on in the chapter. But it also says that this ram pushed westward, northward, and southward. Now that's three different directions, three points on the compass. One has been left off. What is that point? East. So this ram is coming not from the west, but it's coming from the east. Also, this ram was undefeatable and became great. Was undefeatable and became great. Also in the vision, we see the goat in Daniel 8.5. The Bible says, And as I was considering, referring to the ram, behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. As we look at this, we see that this he-goat um, came from the west. The ram is coming from the east, and coming from the west is the he-goat. It did not touch the ground. So if you want to use the term flying, this, um, this goat is flying towards the ram, and it had a notable horn between his eyes. Notice that the horn is singular. Most goats only have, I mean, most goats have two horns, but this one only had one. And that is important. We see the battle of the ram and the goat in verses 6 and 7. The Bible says, And he, the goat, came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him, and smote the ram, and brake his horn, his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground, and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. So we see that the goat charges the ram. Now keep in mind that it's um, not touching the ground. This idea of flying also speaks to its speed. And it charges the ram with collar and with the fury of his power. In other words, he is full of rage, and he is full of anger, and he takes out all of his force upon the ram, and when he collides with the ram, the ram's horns are broken. Both horns are broken, and this undefeatable ram that had become great, no one, no one could save the ram from this goat that had destroyed him. The Bible says then that the great horn that was upon the goat was broken at that time. Verse number 8. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. So pay attention to this. After the victory of the he-goat, after it had destroyed the power of the ram, it had broken the ram's two horns, at that time, in the midst of its great victory, then the horn of the he-goat was broken. Not by the ram or by anything else. It was broken without hands. And after the horn was broken, out of the head of the goat rises up four horns. Four horns toward the four winds of heaven. 
And in verse number 9 through 12, then we are introduced to the little horn. The Bible says in verse number 9, And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. So now we're introduced to the little horn. Now what we learn about the little horn is right here. Notice it says first that it grows out of one of the four horns. So this little horn sprouts out of one of the four horns that is already upon the head of the goat. And it says this little horn waxed exceeding great, so much so that it goes to the south and to the east and toward the pleasant land. Now the pleasant land that it's referring to here, understand that to mean Judah. Some Bible scholars believe that it refers to Jerusalem itself, but it's referring to the land of Israel. Possibly also um, speaking of Jerusalem by itself. He magnified himself, this little horn, um, to the prince of hosts, or later put as the prince of princes in the book of Daniel chapter number 8. He takes away the daily sacrifices, those sacrifices which are performed at the temple, and also he cast down the place of the sanctuary, and he also cast down the truth. So this is what we see about this little horn as described in Daniel chapter number um, 8. Now, my question to you is this. How many of you all understand anything I'm talking about right now? Notice, I've only told you what the Bible said so far. I want you to see it the way that Daniel saw it. Because Daniel had no clue either what in the world he was seeing. And in the midst of seeing this incredible vision, beginning in verse number 13, we see that there was a holy conversation. We see that there was a holy conversation. Look at verse number 13. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? So in the middle of this, Daniel, in his vision, all of a sudden hears a conversation going on, and it's described in verse number 13 as being between two saints. Two saints. Now, when we hear the word saint, we always think of a Christian. But, of course, there were no Christians in Daniel's day. So what is this referring to? Is it referring to maybe two Jews speaking one to another? No. We need to think of the word saint as it can be um, interpreted. The word saint literally means holy one. Holy one. And that's what it's referring to here. Two holy ones speaking to each other, and the definition of these holy ones, or saints, mentioned in verse 13, are angels. There are two angels having a conversation with each other, and one of the angels asked the um, other angel this question. How long shall shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation 
to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. So that's the question that's asked. How long will this vision concerning the, the um, putting away of sacrifices, the desolation of the sanctuary, how long will this occur? Now notice verse 14. The conversation in verse 13 are between one angel and another angel. But notice what it says in verse 14. This is important. It says in verse 14, And he said unto who? Me. So one angel asks the other angel a question. And when that angel answers the question, he does not speak to the angel that asked the question. He speaks to Daniel. The reason why is this. The angel that asked the question did not ask the question for his benefit. He asked the question for Daniel's benefit so that Daniel might know. And the answer was in verse 14, And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Notice it says that the period of time would be two thousand three hundred days, and then importantly, after the two thousand three hundred days, then the sanctuary would be cleansed. Now, it might be good for me to explain to you what the sanctuary is. The sanctuary in the Old Testament is referring to the temple. When you hear the term sanctuary in the, temp, I mean in the Old Testament, it is either referring to the tabernacle or it's referring to the temple. So this is referring to a temple that in Daniel's day was destroyed. So it's speaking to a future temple that is going to be built and the time period for the putting away of the sacrifices the time period for the transgression of desolation, for the, um, the, trotting of the, um, the trotting under of the sanctuary and the truth would be 2,300 days. After this answer, we are now introduced to the angel Gabriel. How many of y'all have ever heard of the angel Gabriel? Anybody? Alright, the angel Gabriel. When we hear of Gabriel, usually we are thinking of the Christmas story. Gabriel speaking to Mary. But... This is um, not the very first time we see Gabriel in the Bible, not in the book of Luke. Gabriel is introduced to us here in Daniel chapter 8. This is the first mention of Gabriel in the Bible. And the Bible says in verse number 15, And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning, then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. Notice it is not a man that's standing before him, but it's one appearing as a man. And the Bible says in verse 16, And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. Now we see that Gabriel stands before Daniel. Before, all Daniel heard in verses 13 and 14 was a conversation between two different angels. He does not see the two angels, he just hears two people speaking. But when we get to verse number 15, then someone stands before him. As the appearance of a man, it says the appearance of a man, so understand when it says he looks like a man, it means that he's not a man. He only looks like a man. This is referring to an angel. And by the way, I've done my best to make sure I don't show angels with wings. Angels do not have wings in that respect. They have the appearance of a man, but an incredible man, if I can describe it that way. 
Notice it says in verse number 16 also, it says that Daniel heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli that calls and speaks to Gabriel. Now, who's the man's voice that's speaking from between the banks of the Uli? The person that's speaking to Gabriel here is God. God is telling Gabriel... Now, I know it says that it's a man's voice, but understand, it's, a man's, it's, it's what you would hear as a person speaking, okay? It's God speaking to Gabriel, telling Gabriel to explain the vision to Daniel. And the Bible says in verse number 17 that Gabriel begins to explain the vision. Notice in this picture that is on our PowerPoint that Daniel's no longer standing. It says in verse number 17, So he, Gabriel, came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. But he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep on my face, toward the ground, but he touched me and set me upright. In other words, Daniel passes out. He faints. It's an incredible vision what he's already gone through. And now, after seeing that incredible vision of the he-goat and the ram and what occurred between them two, all of a sudden this angel appears before him and that's more than he can bear. So when we look at him, he has the appearance of a man, Gabriel, but understand this man has great might and great power behind him. So much so that at his voice and at his appearance, Daniel passes out, he faints. It says in verse number 19, And he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. For at the time appointed, the end shall be. So now Gabriel is going to explain to Daniel, and in effect, since Daniel writes it down, he's going to explain to us what the vision of the ram and the he-goat actually meant. So let's look into this now. The Bible says in verse number 8, I mean verse number 20 of chapter 8, that the ram is the Medo-Persian empire. Look at verse 20. The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. Now remember, the the Medo-Persian empire, we don't call it the Persian empire, it's called the Medo-Persian empire because it consisted of two nations, the Medes and the Persians. Notice when it talked about the ram's horns, there were two horns and one of them was taller than the other horn. That represented the fact that Persia had the power in the empire. Media was a kingdom that joined along with Persia to create the empire, but the strong nation was Persia, and that represented the bigger of the horns. Persia did. So we see that the ram, which had two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. Now look at verse number 21. We see that the goat is the Greek empire. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia. Now, Grecia is the Latin form of the country of Greece. So when you see Grecia, understand it's referring to the, nation, the empire of Greece. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. It is the king that founds the empire. Now, who is the one that founded the Greek empire? One of the greatest men in secular history to ever live. His name was Alexander the Great. That's who the great horn is. Notice it's only one horn. The ram had two horns. This goat only has one horn. It's moving fast because it represents the speed and the military power of Alexander the Great. I've told you before when we refer to Alexander the Great in the book of Daniel, 
Alexander the Great conquered the known world. He went from Greece all the way to the Ganges River in India. That's an incredible journey back in the ancient world. He conquered every land that he came across. Egypt, Persia, Babylon. He conquered them all, all the way through Afghanistan. In fact, he was the last person ever to conquer Afghanistan. Did you know that? Our last person ever to do it. He conquered Afghanistan. He went to the Indus River. And the only reason why he stopped in um, India was because the soldiers said, we're not going any further. We're homesick. We're tired of fighting. Let's go back home. Alexander the Great goes back to Babylon where he wants to set up the capital of his empire. And he dies from a drunken party at the age of 30 years old. He conquers the entire known world by the age of 30. So this refers to the speed of the goat. Remember, he's not touching the ground. He's flying towards the ram. He charges it with fury and with power. It speaks to the speed and the military power of Alexander the Great in verse number 21. Then we see the explanation of the four horns. Look at verse number 22. Talking about the great horn that was on the goat, now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. Now these four horns represent the four generals of Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great died at the age of 30 in Babylon, his four generals rose up and carved his empire between them. Those generals were these men, Cassander, which took Greece and Macedonia, Lysimachus, which took Asia Minor, this is referring to the region that we know today as Turkey, Ptolemy took the region of Egypt and Judah, and then the general Seleucus took the, the um, region of Syria and Babylon. Those four um, generals divided the Greek Empire, between them. And that's what's referring to the four horns, are these four generals which divided the nation. Notice it says in verse 22 that four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation. Notice the, what it says though. But not in his power, referring to Alexander the Great. These generals were um, battle-hardened veterans of the wars of Alexander, but none of them had the mind and the ability that Alexander the Great had. They were not as powerful. They were not as strong as Alexander the Great. And to, be, to show you why, one of them did not take over. They had to divide the empire between the four of them, which shows that none of them had the power or the authority that Alexander the Great had possessed. The little horn. The little horn, verse number 23. The Bible says, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper, and practice, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy also, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, that phrase there, craft, refers to guile or slyness. Craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart. And by peace shall destroy many, 
He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. And the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. So right here we see what the little horn is according to Gabriel. Now the little horn represents a man in history that maybe most of y'all do not know. But he was very important in Jewish history. One of the great villains of Jewish history. And he was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. In the latter part, I mean in the middle part of the um, 2nd century B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes would take the throne. This is a, a, um, a carved head, actually, of, of Antiochus Epiphanes in a museum in the Middle East. He would rise up out of the Seleucid, um, the Seleucid kingdom, the, um, the kingdom that um, Seleucus, the general, had possessed. He was a descendant of Seleucus, and he takes the little, and he becomes what the Bible calls in chapter 8, the little horn. Now I want you to understand before I tell you the story of Antiochus Epiphanes, I want you all to understand something. The little horn in Daniel chapter number 8 is not, let me say that again, is not the little horn in Daniel chapter number 7. They are referring to two different people. I'm going to explain how I know that. Number 1 in Daniel chapter number 7, the little horn rises out of the beast which represents the Roman Empire a later empire than the Greek empire. But we see in Daniel chapter number 8 that the little horn does not rise out of the Roman empire, but it rises out of the Greek empire. So they are referring to two different people. Daniel chapter 7 is referring to someone who will rise out of the Roman empire, that future Roman empire. And Daniel chapter 8 refers to a person that rose already in our history, in Daniel's future, but in our history, rose up out of the empire of Greece. Now, what makes um, Antiochus Epiphanes um, so significant that he is prophesied about here in Daniel chapter number 7? Excuse me, Daniel chapter number 8. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes, his story is told in the book of First and Second Maccabees. Now, that's not in your Bible, and that's a good thing. That is not in your Bible, but... It used to be in old Bibles, there was a group of books between the Old Testament and the New Testament, which are called the Apocrypha. Now, certain groups like the Catholic Church um, view the Apocrypha as Scripture. But us Baptists and most other churches in the world, besides the Catholic Church, do not regard the Apocryphal books as Scripture. Um, They may have some good mottos and good themes to live by, but they are not something that we would view as Scripture. It would be an example... As best as I can put it, the Apocrypha in those old Bibles would have been like putting Pilgrim's Progress in a Bible. It's a good story to read, but you're never going to see a preacher get behind the pulpit at Whitfield Baptist Church and ask you to take out Pilgrim's Progress and turn to Pilgrim's Progress chapter number 2, and we'll begin reading. He's not going to preach a sermon from Pilgrim's Progress. It's a a good bit of history, um, those books in the middle, but... We don't use them, and we don't refer to them as Scripture. However, in the book of 1 Maccabees, we hear the story of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes takes the throne of the Seleucid kingdom, and immediately upon taking it, he goes to war with the nation of Egypt. 
Um, the nation, um, the Egyptian kingdom, which was run by Ptolemy, um, the descendants of Ptolemy. He defeats the Egyptian king, um, kingdom in war, and because he defeated the Egyptian kingdom in war, the, um, the, nation, the Ptolemaic nation had to give the Seleucid nation the region of Judah. That's what he wanted. And he takes Judah, and Judah becomes under the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now when Antiochus Epiphanes takes over, he begins to put himself out as being something of not just a man, but he makes himself out to be a god. The phrase Antiochus Epiphanes, his name is Antiochus, his nickname is Epiphanes. And the Epiphanes there refers to a manifestation of a deity. In other words, he said about himself, when you look at me, you're not seeing a man, you're seeing a god. He called himself a god. And he demanded that the people in his kingdom worship him as god. Notice the, um, the, the head that we have there carved of Antiochus Epiphanes. Before this, the Seleucid Empire, um, rulers had depicted themselves with beards. But when Antiochus takes over and begins to call himself a god, he makes himself clean-shaven. Why? Because when you see the gods of, um, of Greece, they are usually depicted without beards. It was a symbol of deity in carvings. By taking his beard off, he was saying about himself that he was a god. And most of his empire fell in line and began to worship him as God. The one group of people who did not were the Jews. The Jews refused to worship him as God. They only worshiped Jehovah. So Antiochus Epiphanes went to war against them, went to Jerusalem, went to the brazen altar in front of the temple of that day, took a pig, killed it, and offered it for a burnt offering to the God of Jupiter on the brazen altar at the temple. Now, if you all know anything about pigs, in the Old Testament, they were not kosher. They were considered an unclean animal. And it was not an animal that you could offer upon the brazen altar. And in offering that pig, what he had done was he defiled the temple. He defiled the temple. Now, he began to defile the temple, and that stopped the daily um, sacrifices because the temple was unclean, in the year 171 B.C. 171 B.C. And from that point to the day that Antiochus Epiphanes died, no one made sacrifices at the temple. The temple for the Jews was shut down. Now notice what it says about him here. Look at verse number 23. It says, And in the latter time of their kingdom... When the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. This is referring to Antiochus Epiphanes. He's a fierce countenance. He is cruel. He murders priests. He murders the um, high priest of Israel of that day to put in another man um, that would follow his, um, his orders. And it says in verse 24, And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Now what that refers to is, he does not build the kingdom on his own. His kingdom was given to him from the people who were there before him. He does not build his own empire. He inherits an empire. So it's not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully. And that term wonderfully doesn't mean it's a good thing that he destroys. It's just amazing the destruction that he brings about. And he shall prosper and practice, and shall destroy the mighty, 
and the holy people. The holy people referring to the Jews. Now notice this. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. The phrase prince of princes there is a title, not a messianic title, but a title for God. He is called the prince of hosts earlier in the chapter. He's called the prince of princes here. In other words, the prince of princes would be like the king of kings and lord of lords. He stands against them because he says that he is God. And he demands that people not worship the Lord, but worship himself. The final thing concerning him is, it says, and he shall be broken without hand. He shall be broken without hand. Now, we need to go, before we discuss the end of Antiochus Epiphanes, we need to talk again about the 2300 days. Notice it said in verse number, I believe, 14, the angel speaking said to Daniel, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now what are these 2,300 days? Many people have come up with different ideas for it. The Seventh-day Adventists say that these 2,300 days refer to years. Each day represents a year. And what it's referring to is from that time of, um, of Antiochus Epiphanes up until their day would be 2,300 years. Now, According to them, the 2,300 years ended, I believe, in 1884. 1884. They said at the end of that time, Jesus Christ would come back. i got a question for you. Did Jesus Christ come back? No. So understand that the Seventh-day Adventists were wrong. Other people say that what this is referring to, and they have a view that what we're talking about is not necessarily about Antiochus Epiphanes, but about the Antichrist in the future that they, um, these days actually represent, represent half days. Notice it says in verse 26, those people who claim this say in verse 26 it says, and the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true. They said that what this is referring to is 2300 evenings and mornings. So you cut 2300 actually in half and you get the amount of days which is 1150. And they say 1150 is almost, almost what we would understand as three and a half years. This is referring to future times. The problem with that is this. The Jewish sense of the term evening and morning did not refer to halves of days. It always referred to days. Think about Genesis 1.1. The Bible says what happened on the first day. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And what was the next statement? And the evening and the morning were what? The first day. This is referring to 2,300 evening and mornings. Yes, 2,300 days, not half days. So what do the 2,300 days represent? If they don't represent the three and a half years of prophecy that we've already referred to, what is it talking about? Well, let me give you the answer. <coughs> Noted Bible scholar, Dr. Wilbur M. Smith, said this concerning it. And I think he explained it better than I could. He said, this period of 2,300 days is the length of time during which the sanctuary was desecrated by the army of Antiochus Epiphanes. That period of time ran from 171 B.C. to the day December 25th, 165 B.C. 
Now, if you add up the time, you're probably not going to get an exact number of 2,300 days. Understand that 2,300 days is not speaking to a specific end, but it's referring to a period of time. If it's 2,301 days or 2,310 days, that's not important. But the period of time that will be encompassed would be 2,300 days in this prophecy. Now remember that it said concerning this man, verse number 25, it said, but he shall be broken without hand. Do you see that in verse 25? But he shall be broken without hand. On December 25th of the year 165 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes had gone to war, and as he had gone to war, he was struck by a cruel disease, and he dies of his illness. In other words, he is broken, but not without hand. Nobody kills him. He doesn't die of old age, so it says that he is broken, not by a sword, but by a disease. He is broken, but not without hand. Now, December 25th is very important to us because we always think of Christmas. But in the Jewish world, they don't celebrate Christmas. They do have a festival, though, around December 25th. You may have heard of it. It's called Hanukkah. Hanukkah. And Hanukkah pertains to this period of time right here. From 171 to 165, the Temple of Jerusalem was desecrated. They were not allowed to make sacrifices. It had been desecrated because they had put a pig on the altar and offered it for a sacrifice. They had made the place unclean. So the Jews, when they finally find out that Antiochus Epiphanes is dead, they had retaken Jerusalem and they had made a kingdom for them which would stand for nearly a hundred years. What they do is they go to the temple and they begin to try to cleanse it. Now in order to cleanse the temple, you had to have a few things. You had to have the ashes of the red heifer. You also had to have a certain amount of oil. Oil enough to last eight days for the cleansing of the temple. Now the amount of oil they had to burn during that period of time, according to the story, was they had two or three days worth of oil. They did not have enough oil because Israel had become very impoverished due to the wars they were fighting. But they began to try to cleanse the temple. They put the oil in there, and that oil which they only had for two or three days lasted a full eight days. And thus when you ever see a Hanukkah candle, it has eight candlesticks with one candle in the middle, and you light it for each day, representing each day of the cleansing of the temple during the time of the Maccabees. This is what the prophecy is referring to. Now when you look at this prophecy as well, some of y'all would say, Brother Smith, you're saying that all this prophecy deals with a man that lived over 2,000 years ago, but when I read verse, I mean, chapter number 8, boy, that little horn does sound a whole lot like the Antichrist. And you haven't said that it was the Antichrist. Understand that this little horn in Daniel chapter number 8 is not the Antichrist. It's referring to this man, Antiochus Epiphanes. However, Antiochus Epiphanes is a type of the Antichrist. He is typical of the Antichrist. He is somebody who will portend and will in a way show the cruelty of what is yet to come in the Antichrist. But he is not that Antichrist. He is somebody that shows the cruelty of what will go on. It is a foretaste of the horror that will go on during the tribulation. And the Bible says now in verse number 26, 
And the vision of the evening and the morning, which was told, is true. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. So this, um, this angel tells Daniel, close it up. The vision's done. And understand this, it's not going to occur now. This vision is going to be many days into the future. Remember, at the time that Daniel's giving the vision, it says in Daniel 8.1 that it was during the third year of Belshazzar. Who's Belshazzar? He is the final king of Babylon. The final king of Babylon. Daniel is living in the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire is the power of his day. The Persian Empire has yet to rise. Yet what Daniel's seeing is dealing with the fall of the next empire to come and the rise of the third empire, the Greek empire. So this angel tells him it's going to be many days in the future. It won't be in your lifetime. Shut up the vision. The vision is done at this time. And the Bible says in verse 27, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. Afterward I rose up and did the king's business. And I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. So we see here that once Daniel has the vision that he, he faints, when he finally gets the full explanation of the vision, it's so incredible to him that he faints, and the Bible says that he is sickened. He is sickened by the vision for certain days afterwards. After his illness, he rises up and he begins to do the king's business. By the way, verse 27 shows us that Daniel was not in Persia when he had the vision, but he was in Babylon because he's doing the king's business when he gets back up. And who is the king? Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So what he's seeing is he's seeing Persia in the vision. He's not there when the vision occurs. Also, I want you to notice, it says that he did the king's business, verse 27, and I was astonished at the vision. What does it mean to be astonished? It, you froze up. You don't know how to explain it. You stand in awe of it. it. It amazes you. And he said, but none understood it. He told it to others. He wrote it down here in the book of Daniel. And as he would explain it to people, nobody had a clue what he was talking about. Understand, these visions that Daniel had, I find it very interesting when we compare him to Joseph. Remember, Daniel it runs, the life of Daniel runs parallel with Joseph. Again, Joseph. He was, um, he was a person who dreamed dreams and also interpreted dreams, just like Daniel did. Joseph was taken into slavery and brought into a foreign land, just like Daniel was taken captive and carried into a foreign land. Both Daniel and Joseph had great tests of faith. And both of them came through with flying colors. I've always heard preachers say, it's hard to find a sin that Joseph commits in the Bible. You can find a sin for David. You can find a sin for Abraham. You can't find a sin for Joseph. I'd say the same thing for Daniel. Look at Daniel. You can't find the sins for Daniel either. Both come through their tests of faith with flying colors. Both rise to the pinnacle of the second most powerful man in the land through the interpretation of dreams. Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream and is made second most powerful in the land. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream and is made second most powerful in the land. And then, uh, both of them, they had their own dreams as well. 
Now Joseph had his dreams early in his life. Do you remember Joseph's dreams? What did he dream? He dreamed that he, there was one sheaf and the other 11 sheaves bowed down to the one sheaf. He also had a dream that Joseph was a star and that 11 stars and the sun and the moon came and bowed down to the one star. Now, in those dreams, it was easy to interpret what the dreams meant. Wouldn't you agree? After all, he told his brothers the, um, the dream about the sheaves and they knew exactly what it meant. That they were going to bow down to Joseph. They didn't like hearing that Joseph, one of the youngest ones in the family, was going to be having the firstborn, the secondborn, so on and so forth, bowing down to him. Much more than that, when he told the dream to his father concerning the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down to him, his father immediately understood what the dream meant and scolded Joseph for telling him about the dream. Everybody understood Joseph's dreams. He understood what the dream meant when he had it. But Daniel, Daniel doesn't understand the dreams. He can't comprehend what's going on. It's beyond his understanding. And here's an important thing when you understand Daniel's interpretation of dreams. When he interpreted for Nebuchadnezzar, remember he said on both occasions, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, it is not I that interpret the dream, but it is the God whom I serve, the God of heaven and earth, which makes the interpretation of the dream known unto you. Daniel does not take credit for being able to solve and interpret the dream by his own mind. And we see it also with Daniel in chapter 7 and in chapter 8. In both these dreams and visions that he had, he did not understand. Someone had to tell him. And even at the end of both these, he is troubled, he is sickened, and he is not able to fully understand what's going on. So we see these incredible dreams. They affect um, not just the Gentile world, but the Jewish world in particular. The reaction of the fall of the Medo-Persian Empire would have a dramatic effect upon the Jews. Remember, in the book of Daniel, when we have the story of the three Hebrew children, just to remind you, what was the purpose of the miracle of the three Hebrew children not being burned in the fire? Do you remember what the purpose of the miracle was? What God was trying to accomplish for the Jews at that time? It says at the very end that at that point, Nebuchadnezzar passes a law. He makes a decree saying, no one will blaspheme the name of the God of the Hebrews. In other words, what's happening here is, no longer will the Jews in the Babylonian Empire have to fear being persecuted for worshiping God. Important miracle there. What was the purpose of the miracle of Daniel in the lion's den? It was the exact same purpose. When the Persian Empire takes over, the purpose of the, um, Daniel in the lion's den is to secure for the Jews again the freedom to worship without persecution. But when we see the Greek Empire, the Greek Empire, the persecution of the Jews ramps up. It ramps up. So why was this important for the Jews to know? Because with the fall of the Medo-Persian Empire and the rise of the Greek Empire, they would begin to taste persecution like they had never experienced during the Babylonian Empire and during the Medo-Persian Empire. They would experience it during the Greek Empire 
And then when the Roman Empire would come up, we all know from history how bad it would be for the Jews during the Roman Empire. And how bad it will be one day when the revived Roman Empire rises up, they will do to the Jews what the ancient Roman Empire did. With the fall of the Medo-Persian Empire, all their protections are taken away. And now they will suffer. What they suffered during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, again, is a taste of what they're going to suffer during the tribulation period. Again, Antiochus Epiphanes is not the Antichrist, but Antiochus Epiphanes is a type of the Antichrist. Just as you have types of Jesus in the Old Testament, there is a type of the Antichrist given to us here in the Scriptures. And we see it in the little horn of Daniel chapter number 8. Now, if you've heard all that information and you say, that's incredible, I'm going to have to work on wrapping my head around it. Don't feel too bad. Because Daniel had the exact same problem. And he was the prophet that received the vision in the first place. What I'm thankful for in studying Daniel chapter number 8 is this. That no matter what happens, no matter how bad it gets for God's people, there is always deliverance. I mean, you have to think, that's pretty rough when the ruler of the land that you live in marches over to your house of worship and offers a pig to desecrate your temple to a false god and then refuses you to be able to worship in there again. Imagine if the government of the United States went and put chains on this door and told us we are not allowed anymore to worship God. How bad would that be? That would be rough, wouldn't you agree? But notice, even for a man who rose up, he was mighty, he was fierce, he was frightening, he was a man who uttered dark sentences, he was evil, even a man who stops the worship of God, we see that the power of God still works. The Bible says, no, he did not die by the sword, he did not die by his own hand, and no, he did not die of old age. A disease took him which is one of the weapons that God uses against His enemies. God is still in control. So don't fear what's going on in this world. Be concerned by it. Pay attention to it. But do not fear because we worship God. And God is the winner every time. We are not on the losing side. These visions reaffirm to us time and time again that God is faithful and God is true. And let us be grateful for that. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand. Brother Randy's going to come at this time. We'll have a couple of verses of an invitation hymn. Maybe God's spoken to your heart today as you're standing. Maybe there'd be some people that would like to come down here and thank God for His deliverance. Even in frightening times, God is still in control. Maybe you'd like to come down here and thank Him. If you would, maybe um, spend a couple of moments down here it would be some time well spent. Maybe there's someone who wants to come and pray for a sick loved one. Maybe for a lost loved one or somebody out of church. Take this opportunity to do business with God while you have the chance. Let's do business with Him as we sing.